You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. If national security and the powers of the commander-in-chief had been where they are today during the Nixon presidency, he could have easily gone to the Senate during Watergate and said, I'm not going to turn this information over to you for national security reasons, I'm at war in Vietnam, and defend himself. Former Nixon White House counsel John Dean, today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Fifty years ago this week, a botched burglary at the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in Washington, D.C., touched off a political scandal that eventually brought down the President of the United States, Richard M. Nixon. To this day, the scandal is known simply by the name of the office complex where the burglary occurred, Watergate. So all this week on Now I've Heard Everything, we're featuring interviews that I've done with figures central to Watergate. Our last episode featured former Washington Post editor Ben Bradley. On Friday, my interview with the man often called the mastermind of the Watergate burglary, G. Gordon Liddy. And today, a Nixon loyalist who was at the very center of the cover-up, his young White House counsel, a man named John Dean. Now, as the investigation into the cover-up widened, Dean began quietly cooperating with prosecutors. As was later revealed in a secret White House tape recording, Dean had this conversation with President Nixon. There's no doubt about the seriousness of the problem we've got. We have a cancer within close to the presidency that's growing. It's growing daily. It's compounding. It grows geometrically now because it compounds itself. A conversation that Dean famously recalled during his congressional testimony. I gave considerable thought to how I would present this situation to the president and try to make as dramatic a presentation as I could to tell him how serious I thought the situation was that the cover-up continue. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency and if the cancer was not removed the president himself would be killed by it. After serving a brief prison term for his role in Watergate, Dean wrote several best-selling books and became popular on the lecture circuit, and his political views evolved. Over the last 20 years, Dean has become a vocal critic of what he says is the growing authoritarian nature of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. In 2005, he wrote a book about it called Worse Than Watergate. Now, the following year, 2006, is when I first met him. That's when he wrote a book called Conservatives Without Conscience. And then a year later, in 2007, he wrote a third book in his trilogy, and we had another conversation. So what you're about to hear now will be first a portion of my 2006 interview with John Dean, then after a short break, my 2007 conversation with John Dean. In Worse Than Watergate, I raised a lot of questions. In this book, I answer a lot of questions. The title, I gather, is a nod to the man who would have been your co-author. Exactly. Uh... This is a book that emanated from a conversation I had with Senator Barry Goldwater, who, of course, famously authored uh, the, con- <clears throat> excuse me, the conscience of a conservative. And in our conversations, when he said, "John, let's try to address some of these problems. Why are conservatives becoming as nasty as they are? What is this new incivility that has gotten into conservatism? Uh, why these attacks on Bill and Hillary Clinton?" He really didn't. He wanted to know the answer. And so we started on this project together, and as we talked about it, he said, you know, these people have really 
They don't have that conservative conscience that I'm so aware of and so believe is a part of this movement. So that's where it started. And, of course, I would find the answers. And, unfortunately, the senator's health did not permit him to stay with me on the project. So I set it, I set it aside. And he died in uh, mm-hmm. 1998. And I decided, to, after further watching the conservative movement, it was time to go back and complete the uh, the project we'd once started. Well, I found it ironic that people of God will say, of course I have a conscience. I am a religious man. I'm a Christian person. Of course I have a conscience. But that is really the problem that we're talking about, is it not? It is, it is certainly uh, a part of the problem. What happened, I'd have found this body of information about authoritarianism. Uh, it's really over a half century of research that's been going on, and I cannot explain why, but uh, social scientists who've done this work have never really prepared it or released it for the general public, uh, for voters, for people in the public square who should know about this. Uh, Finding this, I said, it answers so many of my Mm -hmm. questions, I've got to share it with others. I've asked countless politicians, political pundits, writers, journalists in this studio over the last several years, why have we become so acrimonious? Why can't, for lack of a better phrase, can't we all get along? And your book really helps explain why we can't. We can't get along because there's about 23% of America, and they happen to be a very dominant force in Republican politics today. Uh, They don't have any inclination to get along. They have uh, to the contrary, they like confrontation. They're very aggressive. Uh, the authoritarian follower will, will, you know, he is very or she is very self-righteous. Mm-hmm. And they don't see that when they're being aggressive and attacking others who have different views and their own inability to look at themselves critically, uh, they are so sure of themselves and they're so confident in their position that they can't see anything wrong with this aggression. Now, you're not saying there are no authoritarians on the liberal side. Well, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, I'm drawing from a deep, wide body of academic and empirical research. And they can find no, in in our system, left-wing authoritarians. Now, let's take the reverse of that. If you go to, say, a communist country, uh, those who support that communist system, if you impose this kind of, uh, uh, of matrix on it uh, to understand it, they would also be, in a sense, right-wing... Conservatives. Uh, conservatives. Mm-hmm. They're conservative, and they're trying to preserve communism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just we don't have that uh, kind of system here. And, and when, they, when they're tested, they, you know, time after time after time, come out to be conservative Republicans. So is a liberal authoritarian an oxymoron? A little bit of it. In testing, they find almost zero uh, left-wing authoritarians. They just don't, they just don't register. Uh, there probably are some, he tells me, uh, but they're so small and so infrequent that they don't really come up as anything significant. Were you, I gather you wanted to be careful in a book like this that you didn't skate so close to the edge that you were close to comparing Bush, Cheney at, at all with a Stalin, a Mussolini, or that kind of authority? Certainly not. Uh, you know, I'm trying to alert people to this this way of thinking that is so prevalent in conservative politics. It is proto-fascist. There's no question. But are we a fascist nation? Are we on a road to fascism? Absolutely not. Uh, but the problem is we're dangerously close to it. And only by raising it, being aware of it, be a, you know, seeing the patterns, looking at it in a larger context, will we make sure we don't get on that road. You're talking here about the, the, 
the political value in keeping us frightened of terrorism? Well, one of the, some of the data I discovered found in the aftermath of 9-11, there's no question that people, because of fear of, of terrorism, uh, moved in large numbers into the uh, authoritarian follower camp, uh, this being in the Republican Party, as it would be. They felt comfort and safety by having strong authoritarian leaders. Uh, the problem is they, this is a blind submission often, and these people are saying, you know, well, I don't care if NSA is, is wiretapping or doing surveillance on my telephone. I, in fact, I hope they are. I'm, I'm not talking to Al-Qaeda. What they don't realize is how easy it is to give up liberties uh, increment by increment, and suddenly they're all gone. And uh, fortunately, there are people who are aware of that problem and keep fighting the battle. Uh, but I must say that there's an awful lot of people who uh, don't really think in those terms until they've lost, it's too late. Well, a truly evil authoritarian regime may tap your phone not only to see if you're talking to al-Qaeda, but to see if you're talking to Greenpeace. Well, that's exactly right. And there is some of that going on. Uh, I, I actually didn't know the name and the label at the time. I was in the Nixon White House. A very authoritarian organization, mm -hmm. uh, no question. It, it, you know, from Nixon through his chief of staff Bob Haldeman to John Ehrlichman, his chief domestic advisor to Henry Kissinger. Mm -hmm. I mean, this uh, this was a salute and, and and carry out the orders. And if you didn't, you were out of there. Uh, it was the way the place worked. So uh, it's it's too easy to uh, to compromise ourselves. One of the things that I I picked up in my research was that indeed. Uh, the authoritarian personality often, if it becomes – the follower particularly, if it becomes aware of its personality, it will – there's a very small percentage of them, but yet a significant number will actually change their behavior. So that was one of the hopeful things in doing this project by pointing these out, that mm -hmm. they would – people would become alert and aware to the problem and they might not fall in the trap. In writing this book, one of the things I thought important, because no one uses the A word, if you will, authoritarianism in our system. We don't think in terms of that in a democracy. But somebody had to say it. Just like when I wrote the last book, no one was talking about mm -hmm. secrecy and the fact we had one of the most secret presidencies. Mm -hmm. Today, everyone openly acknowledges we have a highly secret president. We also have a Republican Party that is heavily dominated by authoritarians. Somebody had to say it. Uh, I'm one who is not shy about that sort of thing, and so I wanted to put it out there. Well, you're also one of the handful of Americans who has an up-close and personal experience with what being within the guarded walls of an authoritarian administration looks like. Exactly, and it's not very pretty. Uh, does I, I don't want to go too far afield here, but does this current White House have an enemies list? <laughs> uh, I suspect they have, if they, whether they keep a formal list or not, I don't think they're so foolish. Well, no one to, probably uh, keeps a formal uh, list anymore. List anymore. I, I do often think that there are times that they found an old Nixon playbook down in the basement of the White House, brought it up, dusted it off, and said, this stuff looks pretty good. In fact, let's add a few more chapters of our own. Well, sure, if the New York Times writes about something that we think should be kept secret for national security, well, we should shut out the New York Times. Well, they want to prosecute the New York Times. Mm -hmm. In fact, a very interesting parallel is uh, after the leak of the so-called Pentagon Papers in the summer of 71, uh, one of the first questions I was asked uh, by the president is, can we prosecute the New York Times for this? And I did research. I said, yeah, there's a broad statute, uh, 1917 Espionage Act. But he quickly decided, no, 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 I, I would never prosecute the Times. Now we have a, a White House that's talking about prosecuting the Times. Mm -hmm. And 
in the name of national security, right? Which is exactly the same blanket Mr. Nixon was using. Exactly, as well. exactly. In fact, you know what? I've often thought if national security and and foreign affairs and the powers of the commander in chief had been where they are today during the Nixon presidency, he could have easily gone to the Senate and said, or during Watergate and said, first, I'm not going to turn this information over to you for national security reasons. I'm at war in Vietnam. Uh, this is, I'm a wartime president. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a threat to America. It's a, uh, you know, it's a dire threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do what this administration is successfully doing and defend himself. If, 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 uh, if the parallel situation were to happen today, this president could probably defend himself against those kinds of charges. Well, as you point out in your book, we survived coming within inches of all-out nuclear war in the late 50s, early 60s, without the same taking of or grabbing of power by the president that we've seen now. Well, I tried to point out the fact that uh, there is really an unusual degree of fear-mongering going on. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that they decided and discovered, uh, probably from their own polling, that people do move to the Republican ranks and uh, because of this authoritarian nature of the Republican ranks when they're frightened. So uh, they're doing their best to keep the populace and, and, and the electorate frightened. They're, they've done it in every election since uh, 9-11. They're doing it now in this midterm 06 election. Uh, it works. And so they're going to do it again. After this short break, as we fast forward a year, John Dean talks about a growing nostalgia for Richard Nixon. Now to a portion of my 2007 interview with John Dean. In the first book, Worse Than Watergate, I've looked at what they were doing. Uh, In the second book, I looked at why they were doing it, they being Republicans and conservative Republicans in particular, who had my attention. This last book analyzes the consequences of what they uh, are doing or, and have done. Well, the mess that we're in, if we want to phrase it that way, didn't just happen in the last six and a half years, did it? it I actually trace back a number of the things that have gone astray. I'm looking at what's happened. Uh, in fact, a lot of people say, why are, you be- why are you beating up on Republicans? Well, the Republicans have earned it. They're the people who've been running the government for the last uh, several decades. They've certainly controlled over the last 40 years. They all but 12. They've controlled the executive branch. Uh, they now dominate the judicial branch. And until uh, – uh, very recently, after the 2006 election, they controlled the legislative branch. So they're responsible, and the government is in bad shape. Three out of four Americans will tell you their government's broken. When I learned that data, I didn't think every one of them knew exactly why. Uh, there are lots of different complaints one could make. What I try to look at are sort of the major faults, the major breakdowns, the constitutional fundamental uh, ways we've gone astray and what its consequences have been for the government. Would there have been process changes even if we had never been thrust into a war? As I explained to my readers very clearly, uh, the first person that uh, I sort of noticed had, had, had discovered that the people in, uh, in Texas when Governor Bush was thinking about running for president – uh, was George Will. He went down there and happened to notice a book written by Terry Eastland uh, called Energy and the Executive, which is a pure process book about how to expand presidential power. So th- this agenda was set long before uh, Bush and Cheney came to Washington. Uh, they, it was very clear to me uh, long before 9-11 that they planned to 
uh, take the so-called Nixon imperial presidency way beyond anything Nixon ever dreamed of. And then they have very effectively used uh, 9-11 as a pretext to do that. When, when you mentioned the Nixon White House, with which you are familiar, it strikes me now how, in some ways, how quaint it looks compared to what we have. Well, I think a lot of people would would like to have Nixon back. In fact, I was um, – where was I? I was up in, in, in Vermont, and the head of the Green Party up there said to me, he said, you know, we, we would love to have Nixon back today. We would vote for Nixon, uh, given our alternative that's now the incumbent uh, in Washington. So I think there is a certain nostalgia for Nixon. He certainly has foreign policy. I can't believe he would have gotten us in the mess we're in in Iraq. Uh, not uh, the realists, uh, of which school he is a, uh, a, a very well-known voice, like Kissinger, probably don't – they don't go looking for wars. They're not opposed to war, but they don't like dumb wars, and we're into a dumb war. The thing that strikes me, and you talk about this so much in this book and the two previous, is how we've almost come to take it for granted that things will be done that we've never seen done by a government before, but somehow or another – it hasn't bothered us to the point where we're ready to stand up and shout and say, why are you doing this? Why are you breaking the law so blatantly? Why are you throwing up walls of secrecy all around? Why is this happening? Well, I think if, if you, uh, you boil it all down, it really, in my last book, Conservatives Without Conscience, you find that the authoritarian personality has taken charge of the Republican Party. It's these uh, things that you're raising and are curious and concerned about are very typical authoritarian behavior. Uh, this now dominates uh, the ranks of leading Republicans. Well, indeed, uh, you had written that uh, just about all the Republicans that are in the field now for the 2008 election are indeed to one degree or another authoritarian, are they not? If you look at the scales and the way they measure authoritarian behavior, uh, there's no question that the most authoritarian of the Democrats doesn't come close to the least authoritarian of the Republican. Uh, it's just an, a very different uh, outlook, worldview, style, manner, uh, approach to problem solving. Uh, we have a, a bunch of, uh, on the Republican side of what are well-known as social dominators. These are guys who, who jump out in front and say, follow me, I can run the show and take charge, and uh, we've got to do it my way because I have all the answers. Uh, with one exception, I'd say Ron Paul is not in that category. He's probably the, the least of the, uh, um, of the authoritarian, with Giuliani probably being the most authoritarian. I'd heard someone say that I think it was probably a Democrat that if you liked Bush's take on civil liberties that you would enjoy Giuliani because he appeared to be Bush on steroids. I think that's a very accurate description. Certainly any New Yorker will tell you that. I guess this gives lie to the common perception that there's really no difference between the political parties that, you know, you vote for dumb or dumber or, you know, the lesser of two evils. I mean, is there a difference? Is there a real difference now between a Republican candidate, a Democratic candidate? I think there is. Uh, if you look at the candidate level, there may be uh, – there's certainly very different types. What I also look at is broader at, at the party itself. Who are going to be the supporting players in the new administration? This is what's most troubling about the prospect of another Republican administration because the Bush-Cheney people have gone way beyond anything that the civil service laws would prohibit them from doing to embed uh, people they think are right-thinking conservatives, uh, uh, good authoritarian soldiers. They've done that because they, they, 
they were convinced that one Clinton had left an awful lot of that in, although he had not, in fact, tried to do that. Uh, when I've raised that with with people who are knowledgeable, I said, "Well, you've got to also look at the fact that uh, the Democrats are the type who are more inclined towards public service, which is very true." And so there's no question they probably are uh, dominant within the uh, the bureaucracy of the federal system. And uh, this is because not that they are thinking party politics, not because they're trying to do what's best for the Democratic Party, as, say, the Republicans uh, often do. It's because they are interested in, the, in what's generally good for the public, and they're interested in public service not to serve a party or partisan interest, just because they're interested in government as a vehicle for public service. Uh, You've got the irony, and I don't understand why a lot of people who are hardcore conservatives even bother to get involved in government, because they think government's the problem, not the solution. What what worries me is that we have an entire generation of young voters now who really don't know anything different. They've always had this kind of political climate since they've been voters. The good news is that the, this upcoming generation is very, very progressive. Uh, I'm somebody who's been at, uh, uh, at a visiting scholar at the University of Southern California for now about six, seven years. I've noticed that with each coming, incoming freshman class, uh, I then saw some recent uh, Pew polling that shows that young people are far more liberal than they've ever been. So I think the pendulum is swinging as well. John Dean is 83 now. His last book, Authoritarian Nightmare, was published in 2020. And you can find easy Amazon links to John Dean's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at Heard Everything, be sure and listen to my 1987 interview with the man who would have been John Dean's co-author, Senator Barry Goldwater. And I'll tell you, politics has become a very, very dirty business. It was bad enough when I was in it. But now it's become even worse, and I don't like it. And my 2005 conversation with a Democratic critic of the George W. Bush administration, Senator Robert Byrd. This is a secretive administration. It does not trust the Congress. It does not trust the people. It is an administration that looks upon the Congress with contempt. And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. And next time, as we wrap up our coverage of the 50th anniversary of Watergate here on Now I've Heard Everything, my 1991 conversation with the man often referred to as the mastermind of the Watergate break-in, former FBI agent and Nixon re-election operative, G. Gordon Liddy. I would not have gone to prison for John Dean. I would uh, go to prison for my president anytime. I was being led to believe that I was doing this for the president. The president didn't even know about him. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. <laughs>